listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. We're laughing because we just started this podcast episode and it wasn't even recording yet. So we're going to take two. Welcome back, guys. Sal, how are you doing? <laughs> Welcome back to the Good Morning Podcast, guys. Um, you would think after three years of doing this that we'd have it down pat, wouldn't you? But um, I, I'm really, I'm really good actually. Um, I've just had my friend Alex here for two weeks from the UK. He's a really good friend of mine from uni and he's never been to Oz before. So that was really special to be able to show him around and just, you know, I think there's nothing quite like having somebody that you know really well from home visit you and have that kind of, yeah, that that, that bit of history and that bit of familiarity. So that was really nice, really, really nice to connect and reminisce because the last time I saw him was, it was actually couple of days before my mum's funeral and it was that that I think the last time you saw him yeah and you know I've spoken about on the pod about how I had that time when I was with my friends and I felt joy Mm. and it was like a couple of days before my mum's funeral so that was when I was with Alex and some other friends and yeah it was really nice to see him again really nice oh I love that for you and it's so nice it's so right to like those friends that you haven't seen for years and then you just pick up right where it left off, right? They're such special friendships to have. They are, they are. And it's mad when I think, God, like the last time I saw him was mm. just after mum died and like so much has changed, like so much has happened in that time. So we had a lot to catch up on because it's hard to catch up properly on everything when you're just like, you know, WhatsApping or FaceTiming. So it's really nice to have that quality time with him. Um, but yeah, what about you, Im? I was, by the way, I was laughing so hard at us last night on WhatsApp. So we're recording this the day after the England versus Australia Women's um, World Cup semi-final, and <laughs> Im and I were WhatsApping each other like we were bloody football pundits. We've got no idea about football. <laughs> Football fanatics, guys, we're basically going to rename this podcast. What did you come up with? Good foosball? Good foosball. (laughs) Yeah, oh my God, it was such an intense game though. I just feel like like everyone else has suddenly become football fanatics too. We've just jumped on the bandwagon with everyone else. So yeah, it was a pretty intense game last night. And you were quick to jump jump ship when Australia lost, might I just add. Uh, I was watching it with um, two friends who were British and they were supporting England. And me and my husband, I actually, I was supporting the Matildas. I think because I've lived here for so long, I felt I felt really passionate about the Tillies getting a win. But then we were laughing because I was saying to them, like, when England was scored a goal, I was like, I'm so proud to be British. Like, they were like, you're flip-flopping so hard. I'm like, well, if dual citizenship, what is it good for if it, if not this? You know what I mean? Um, oh but yeah, it was it was very funny. It was making me laugh. Your, your commentary was very funny, Im. Oh, people couldn't handle me. We went to the sports club. I'm just one of those people that just get into things. Like, I'm all or nothing, old Im. And I was at the sports club, and like every time we scored, I was like, get off my chair, going, yeah, I got the Tillies. Everyone's like, oh my God, calm down. Mate. I you love you saying like every time. It was once. <laughs> oh, anyway, this is not a football podcast, but, but it will joke. be soon. Joke, joke. No. that it will become one soon because Sal and I think we know everything. Oh. Can we also talk about your idea for a podcast episode, grieving the loss oh, of the World grief. Cup? We're all mourning the loss of the World Cup, although we can still come third place. I do know that. Did you know that? Yes. 
that's still yes. a thing that can happen even yeah but yeah so we're all collectively mourning this morning for the Matildas and their loss of the I was about to say the Rugby World Cup <laughs> wasn't that was it <laughs> Oh shit! Look, we just gotta stick to our lane. Stick to our lane. Stick to what we know. We know grief. Let's just stick to it. Let's just crack on with grief, okay? Yeah. Im, on that note, how are you? (laughs) Oh my god. Okay. Besides the collective grief of the football game, I've also been like in such a weird space with my grief at the moment. I have moved into this place where I feel like my mum is starting to become a dream and I'm not quite coping with it like you could probably relate to this Sal because you're just that little bit ahead of me but like so it just she feels like a dream that life with a mum feels like a dream oh I can absolutely relate it's almost akin I think to that you know in the early days when you have that the shock is all con- consuming and you almost feel like it's a dream that they're dead. You know, you're like, oh, is that even real? That's, is that kind of what it feels like in a sense when you think of her and you think of the life that you had and the fact that she existed on this planet? It's almost like, did that even happen? Was that yeah, it's even... It's like flipped. It's flipped. Yeah. Oh, my God, you've just nailed it. So, yeah, when they die, it's like, how can they be dead? That's not real. Waiting for them to walk through the door any any minute for so long. And now I'm on the other side where it's like, was that, like, was she even real? Was that life real? I'm just getting so used to this life without her that that life feels like a dream. Mm. But it's fucked up. Like, I don't like it. It's, it is a strange one to get your head around. I think it's the marker of time, isn't it? As time goes on and and life goes on, it's that, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that that was something in your life. It's yeah, it's such yeah. a weird one. Like how how has that made you feel? Like confused? Have you had any like grief bombs or is it just more of that kind of almost like a head fuck basically? Yeah, no grief bombs with it. It's just this I have to really sit and tap into remembering her. Like I think about her all the time. I think about my mum all the time, but like that remembering her, her voice, her presence, what it was like to have a mum, like that feeling I really have to tap back into because it feels so distant at the moment. And that may change, I don't know. But yeah, it's it's a really strange, surreal feeling and I don't like that feeling of that the distance. Mm. And her Yeah, it's just I don't know. It's been a weird kind of transition into that new place. I can relate to it is like tapping in isn't it you have to sort of actively access the memories of them they don't feel as forthcoming and as fresh as in those initial years when it's all consuming now it's almost like you've got to really take yourself there it's it's doing that bit of digging isn't it yeah and like in the early years We'll call it the early years because I think the early days are the early years. There was that yearning, like the yearning and the mm-hmm. longing for the, like her, and it's like I don't know. It's it's my grief is changing, but it's just yeah, she's feeling further away, and I I really do have to consciously try to like tap into her memory, which is sad. I wonder if. And I always bang on about journaling, but I I wonder if doing some journaling might help access those memories. I think it probably would. Mm. Or even like some letter writing, something like that, where you can, where you're 
you're really kind of unearthing those memories of her and connecting mm. to her. Or is this healing? Is this, or is this healing? part of yeah. the healing? Is this healing? Because it is sad, but at the same time, I'm not yearning on the floor, howling for for my mom. It's just like it's just a a sad realization that I don't. She's not here, mm, and I, I have think to think is... really hard about the life when she was here. Like maybe mm. I'm healing. The the jewelry's out, guys. <laughs> no, I think it. it I think it is, and I think this is part of the this is this part of the process right Mm. like the grief is always with us we always think about them we miss them we love them grief is a reflection of that but over time it is more bearable and it doesn't feel as ever present and ever painful yeah so yeah it's interesting and i can yeah i can relate to you about the the dream I was thinking about this morning when I was walking the dogs, actually. You know, you just randomly think about stuff. And I was, like, thinking about growing up with my mum. And I was just, like, just doesn't even feel like that was my life. So, yeah. So I think probably a lot of listeners can can relate to that as well. Yeah. And something else I should do, as well as journaling, is not judge it. And just accept that that's part of the process. And it is what it is. But, yeah, I just wanted to ask you if you... I, I, I had a feeling that you would understand because your mum's dead too no but like (laughs) you know what I mean I just I knew you'd kind of get that feeling that I'm experiencing at the moment which is a new one so totes get it yeah (laughs) (laughs) thanks mate well yeah that's my grief how's your grief been I'm doing all right um I've been definitely thinking about my mum had loads of signs the other day so weird just loads of little signs yeah like it's so weird but like even like I can't even remember them all because they were just like just popping up here and there. Like, I was in the car with my friend and she, she was talking about the scenic route, which is a uh, private joke between me and my husband relating to my mum. And then I would later that day, I was watching the women's um, World Cup football match between France and Australia. And the sign that I have for my mum is the infinity sign. Um, and one of the players on her finger, Sam Kerr, she has the infinity sign and next to it, the number 20 which is her shirt number but that is also the day that my mum died just little things like that that you know coincidences whatever they are but little connections I just felt like connect connected to her but in terms of grief level it's been manageable ask me in a week when I've had time to decompress it might be different <laughs> but I've been doing lots I feel of journaling like, yeah, you usually do do a big come down don't you when you've had those busy periods Get ready, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) The pod will be on fire. Yeah. (laughs) Also love that the football was giving you signs. Sam Kerr, just, you know, she's the sign meister. Not only the best women's football player in the world, but also the giver of signs. (laughs) Calm down, mate. It's the only football player you know in the world. Okay, honestly, we, we have, we've actually got a lot of exciting things we want to get through before we get to our guests. So we've got some things in the pipeline that you will all be very interested in. Sal, tell us, what's, what have we got going on? Oh, we have been busy bees behind the scenes. So we're always thinking about like ways that we can continue to serve you guys. We're always listening to the messages that we get from you and thinking about how we can help you have the strategies and tools to help you in your grief above and beyond our podcast and the content that we serve you and time and time again I think one of the most 
common things that we hear from you guys, the messages we receive is nobody told me that grief was so physical because it is a surprise, isn't it, Im? You know, often we don't expect to be exhausted, to feel foggy, forgetful, anxious, to not be able to sleep, all of the things. So we have partnered with a podcast guest and TEDx speaker, grief and loss expert and psychotherapist Megan Reardon Jarvis to bring you a 90-minute interactive workshop that will educate you on how and why grief impacts us physically and how to cope. It's going to be a good one, isn't it? There's a lot to unpack. We are going to be looking at our energy levels, how grief impacts them, cognitive function, sleep and sex drive, and also give you some simple strategies and tools to help you guys cope with everyday life after loss. And the wait list is now open. So if you are interested, you want to know more and you want to be one of the first to get tickets, head to the link in our show notes or the link in our Instagram bio to add your name to the wait list. It's going to be taking place on the 10th of September US time and the 11th of September in the morning Aussie time. We'll be able to share more details once we launch the event link. But if you're interested and you want to know more, just pop your name on the list and we'll get it out to you. Um, And we've also been busy. It's not the only thing that we've been creating for you all. We've also been creating a platform to help you connect with other grievers because we know that's really important to you. We often hear from people to say, I wish I had a friend like you. I wish I had a sow to my ear. I'd love to meet other people who are going through a similar situation and interact with other grievers. So we really want to be able to facilitate more meaningful connections for you guys. So we are creating a peer-to-peer grief support membership where you can connect with fellow grievers and access lots of resources. And we're going to be having virtual support group meetups, which we know is very much needed within the community. It also means that we can create so much more for you guys, more education, resources, tools, connection, all the good stuff. So if you want to join that, we love a wait list. We've also got a wait list going for that. So you can be the first to find out when we do eventually launch it. So head to the show notes and join that one. And that's all the wait lists we've got for you at the moment, guys. But one final thing before we get into today's <laughs> guest, we're actually heading to Melbourne soon. And we're going to be speaking at a fundraising event for Hope Bereavement Care on Monday, the 23rd of October at Geelong Regional Library. So if you live in Melbourne, come and join us. We'll be in conversation with our lovely friend and grief advocate joe betts who we've had on the pod before and we will pop the link to this event in the show notes as well let's get on to today's guest i loved this conversation i feel like i say that about every conversation we have but (laughs) (laughs) but i really really love this one today's guest is dr lucy hone who is an award-winning academic and director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. And some of you might already know her because she has um, quite a well-known TED talk on grief and resilience. And she is also the author of the very popular and excellent book, Resilient Grieving. And she knows the magnitude of grief well, doesn't she, Im? She does. So in 2014, her 12-year-old daughter, Abby, sadly died in a car crash. And, you know, what? what's really interesting about this conversation is how she talks about how her and her husband, after Abby died, how they focused their attention on what they could change and influence. 
by being active participants in their grief. And I think we could really relate to that, couldn't we, Im? She, mm. she talks about how she, she wanted to actively find the tools and strategies to help her feel a little bit better, despite being faced with such tragic loss. And I think that's something that, that we and a lot of our listeners also feel this sense of wanting to know how to help yourself, even if it's a tiny bit when you're all consumed by grief. Yeah, it's such a good episode. And I think a lot of people may think of resilience as toughening up or cracking on, you know, not facing the pain. But as you will hear throughout this conversation, it is not that, is it? It isn't. And she also shares really simple and practical tips on how you can cultivate resilience. And I think no matter where you're at in your grief journey, no matter how long it's been, these can benefit us all. So without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy, guys. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Sal and I have been so looking forward to speaking with you. So good to be here. Thank you. It's a real honour. I love your work. Um, It's really important and it's so part of my mission. So thank you for inviting me along today. And it's mutual. Sal and I are big fans of your work. So for some of our listeners, they may actually already be familiar with you from your TED Talk or your incredible book, Resilient Grieving. But for those who aren't, could you tell us how you ended up becoming an expert on resilience and why grief in particular is an important topic to you? Yeah, thank you. Um, Like so many of your guests, we all have a story, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, and it's rarely linear, that's for sure. So I first became fascinated in resilience, the word resilience, back in 2008. <clears throat> and and that, I, that was the global financial crisis. So it suddenly seemed to me that everyone was talking about the economy needed to be resilient and nations needed to be resilient. And this was the first time that I thought, does anyone know what this word means? It, and, and I was a researcher and a writer at the time, not an academic. Um, And I decided that what I was really deeply curious to find out more about the concept of resilience, like, really, are we hardwired with it? Is it a fixed trait? Do some people have more than others? Is it a learnable skill? Can we teach it to other people? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, what was going on was a new friend of mine um, was really struggling with depression and so this is, a, you know, 15 years ago now, and depression wasn't talked about nearly as much back then. And I remember thinking, feeling really frustrated that my cupboard was bare. I did not know, as a friend, what I could do to help her um, navigate, you know, what she was living through. And so those two things combined with the fact that I then heard Martin Seligman on the radio one day talking about psychological well-being and saying you know we can't medicate an entire generation of americans what are we actually going to do to help people promote well-being and protect them against mental distress mm-hmm. and so then i discovered that martin seligman had a, a masters in resilience psychology at the university of pennsylvania and i managed to get myself there and that was the beginning of my academic study into resilience psychology and it was an amazing place to be to study because they had all the kind of the psychological greats would turn up on our weekend um, on-site courses 
And so I was really lucky to learn about positive emotions from Barb Fredrickson, strengths from Chris Peterson, um, grit from Angela Duckworth. And they were trained, they were putting together the training program for the American army at the time. So I, I describe myself as a pracademic, meaning that, you know, I'm all about taking the best of science out of, dragging it out of academia, which I don't think is nearly done enough, mm. and making it useful and relevant to people in their everyday lives. So it was, they were the department that were doing that pracademic role. They were at that time, they created the Penn Resilience Program and were starting to train school kids in resilience and proving that it wasn't a fixed trait, that actually it was malleable and that they could teach people to be, to have higher levels of well-being, less depression. And so thereby, you know, they were teaching these skills of resilience. And I then, I'd already experienced grief. We might come on to talk about that. And I lost my mother in my early 30s. So like you guys, you know, really went through that experience of having children and losing my mum at the same time. But in 2014, we then lost our 12-year-old daughter, Abby, in a horrific car accident where she was killed with her best friend, Ella, who was also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine. So I, you know, I went from having this academic understanding of resilience and what enables people to weather potentially traumatic events and I was really on top of at the time I was doing my PhD and so I was immersed in all of the theories and reasoning um, and the best findings of what enable people to navigate tough times um, but you know I, I never realised I would have to be applying all of this work in such tragic circumstances in my own life. So it has been a peculiar, um, yeah, a peculiar road to navigate. But, um, yeah, and here I am. We are just, we're so sorry. It's just unimaginable <laughs> loss and unimaginable news to have received. Mm. And to then find yourself neck deep in intense pain and grief not only of losing your daughter but also your friends and your family mm. friends and I'm curious to know Lucy did did any of the research and the work that you'd done did that morph and change after your own loss was any of it really helpful or did it completely evolve so I will be the first to admit that when the girls died I had my doubts as to whether any of the training that I had done and all of the research into this field of resilience psychology, whether actually it would help me. Mm -hmm. And so I, like a good social scientist, I decided to be my own experiment and put all of the ways of thinking and acting and being that I had seen come out of the research studies that was helping other people. So I would put those to the test in my own life. And I started writing a blog, which is where the book Resilient Grieving came from. Um, and, and for me, I'm a writer, so writing is cathartic anyway. And as we know from countless studies, um, really a good way to sort out what's going on in your brain. So um, I started writing and yes, I did. I was absolutely blown away by how useful 
the some of this body of knowledge was to me when pitted against the most extreme form of bereavement, which is parental bereavement. And what I think the helpful things to know were it gave that I had hope that I had seen all the studies that showed that the most common response to all types of potentially traumatic events is resilience. Mm -hmm. I had a belief that I could get through it. And I also knew that I had to personalize what worked for me. And I had this, you know, my most well-known question that I encourage people to ask themselves is what I'm doing helping or harming me in my quest to get through this mm. was is a classic example of the kind of information that was so forefront of my brain that I did go into automatically using these strategies that I've been taught in. Because I think quite often, and this is what we both really love about your work, is you are an active participant in your grief, like Im and I. And mm. I think quite often when we are hit by such tragic loss, the things that we're told can be less than helpful. And I know that's something that you experienced, isn't it? And, and then we can often feel like we're told how we're going to be feeling, but not really given helpful strategies to help ourselves in the experience. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, definitely that was one of the my bugbears at the time was that we were given a pretty passive and pathologizing um, prescription and by that I mean we were told to write off five years of our life to her loss that we were now prime candidates for divorce mental illness and family estrangement and you know I really truly remember thinking wow thanks for that I thought my life was already completely shit yeah I can like, laugh what? about I can laugh about it now but you know it's out and of course and of course it wasn't like one person it wasn't like one person said that but those were the the pathologizing messages the yeah. you know the bad news messages that got through to me um and I do think I was really lucky that I had all of this or I'd seen all those studies that actually show that we can get through all kinds of tough times using very ordinary processes so that did give me hope and action and and I will also admit, as a person, I have a high level of personal agency. You know, I want to get on and do stuff. Mm. Um, but I, I, and I worried about them because when I wrote that book, there was nothing like this available. Honestly, you guys weren't around. Nobody was around to help me then. And so I was really worried that I'd get slammed for putting additional pressure on the bereaved. And I didn't want to do that, obviously. And I was really worried that maybe I was one of the, you know, few people who wanted to be an active participant in my grief journey process, whatever you horrible word you want to use. And actually what I have found in our coping with loss program since is I was not alone. There are lots mm. and lots of people who are desperate for tools to discover um, research based tools that will give them some idea of ways of thinking, acting and being that might just help. It doesn't mean they're going to take all the grief away. Um, you know, nothing's going to remove all the pain, is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, and it shouldn't remove all the pain. I think the pain is something that we will feel forever. Um, I'm interested to know, Lucy, like how did your husband cope with the loss in comparison to you? And, and also, did you have any judgment from people for the approach 
that you were taking to your recovery as well. I'm yeah, I'm interested to know about that dynamic. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, like every couple, we're different. We have different personalities, different ways of approaching things, and we, of course, grieve differently. He's much more of an extroverted griever than me, and he's really open and open and honest emotionally. And actually, that was one of the the great things for me. I actually fell in love with him for his open, honest, raw, let's just get on and say everything approach to life. And in our darkest days, that really did save us. So he never held back. Um, And I think intuitively, he, he definitely was on board with the fact that we needed to focus all of our attention on the stuff that we could change and influence and try not to get trapped in the hell hole of just focusing on what we've lost. Yeah. He, he was really amazing in that it was Trevor and um, our boys who said, let's not blame the driver. And wow. that forgiveness piece came from him and Ed, our eldest, who were, I remember while we were sitting in the police car, one of them said, we won't blame the driver, will we? And I remember thinking, yeah. oh, no, no, we won't. And and I had that sense and my training also told me that, you know, forgiveness isn't condoning, that actually we were better off to not blame the driver. I'm, there's nothing wrong with all negative emotions and I'm not trying to sugarcoat it or be kind of toxic positivity here, but we just knew in our gut and from my psychological training that actually forgiveness is a faster track and um, we were going to do better as a family if we could forgive um, and move forward by focusing our attention on the stuff that we could change and influence. So forgiveness. Forgiveness has been a huge part of my journey as well. And I had no idea what forgiveness was prior to the sudden death of my mum. And I just always assumed it was you let the person off the hook if they do wrong to you. But it really is about not holding on to any hatred in your heart, not letting those negative emotions drown you and, yeah, freeing yourself, I think, from from not being able to move forward in your life. Yes, you don't do forgiveness for them, you do it for you. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And it is so powerful to relinquish that blame and to be able to just focus on your story, not their story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a a huge, a huge part of your your grief recovery hasn't it in the the giving yourself the gift of forgiveness and you just mentioned there Lucy that so your husband is more of an extroverted griever so were you more introverted did you tend to keep your feelings to yourself a bit more talk us through that because it's it's interesting to hear your perspective on that yeah so that is one of the kind of known differences isn't it the extroversion versus introverted griever and obviously we are not, none of us one nor the other but um I am more of an introverted griever and my husband is more of an extroverted griever but we but knowing that and knowing that that's our kind of the way our modus operandi he stayed at home in that first week and would very much, you know, entertain everybody and make the tea. And he was really good at doing all of that, chatting to everyone and being the kind of front footing. 
And I remember that I would offer to drive people home so that I could sit one-on-one in the car with someone or I'd go out for a walk with someone and, and avoid the really busy moments at home. And that worked very well for me. I very much do remember thinking I needed to remain the sort of still small voice of calm as as that hymn goes that I think my mother gifted me in that moment. She's been dead a long time, but I I remember standing in the bedroom and thinking, yeah, you need to be the small voice of calm in the middle of this maelstrom of hyperactivity. Um, Yes. It's so interesting, isn't it, the, 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 the dynamics and the way that we all cope differently. It's something Im and I always compare notes on how we, you know, our experiences were very, very different. And, you know, you talk about, you, you know, your husband was the sort of the face of entertaining people and, you know, keeping busy. And I think that's it. We do have so much to do when we are faced with loss. It, you know, we can't simply just sit there and, you know, uh, and just be like life resumes doesn't it we have we just have to show up and keep doing stuff so this is something that comes up a lot in your your work is the importance of choice so could mm. you tell us a little bit about that when it comes to how we grieve yes yeah, so I'm leaning into um Tom Attig's work here who is um, a very experienced grief researcher and he makes the distinction between grief reaction and grief response. And I love the way that he says that your grief reaction is all of those physiological, psychological, you know, emotional, um, all of those experiences that you have, the raw emotions and gut suckering, punched feeling that you get when you lose someone. And you can't control your hair from falling out or those grief sweats or the uncontrollable, you know, grief ambushes. But your grief response, you do have some choice over, and that is how you choose to respond to the relearning to live in your world um, as time goes on. And I think this is um, resilient psychology underpins this kind of mindset that actually it is, the way we choose to act and be and think in the micro moments of our lives has a really big impact on how we feel and function our relationships and how we are show up in the world. So, yeah, that's really worked well for me. I like that distinction that you can't control your grief reaction. That's the, all the onslaught of stuff that just happens. But in time, you do have choice over the people you forgive, the invitations you say yes to, the way you guide people in how they can help you and the people you solicit for friendship, all of those things. You know, you there's, there's much that we can control. And my field of resilience psychology encourages people to work out what they can control and focus your attention on that. But this is not hardening up and being bulletproof, you know. Actually, it's at the same time having that vulnerability and self-compassion to go to bed and hide under the duvet when you need to. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people misinterpret what resilience means, don't they? They think you have to be strong or put on a brave face, but it's quite the opposite, which we'll get into more. I really want to hear more on the topic of resilience. But there's something that you said in in an interview that I listened to and I loved, and you said, don't lose what you have to what you've lost. And that struck a real chord with me because when my mom died suddenly from suicide, I had a nine-month-old baby, and I just Mm -hmm. remember like, feeling like there is absolutely no way I'm ever going to recover from this. I'm never going to be able to be a good mum for my daughter. It was so dark because I was very, very close with my mum and it was very Mm. out of the blue. And I did, you know, you do have a choice in those moments. I had to show up for her. I had to make that decision. I'm not going to let her not have a mum. You know, she deserves Mm. to have a mum and have a happy life. So, yeah, in those moments you do have to actively make that choice to you know, and it's not easy, is it? No. You know, I think that's where people get misconstrue resilience, particularly resilient grieving, that they think that what I'm saying is harden up, get out of bed and get on with it, fake the positivity and you'll be fine. <laughs> and that couldn't be further from the truth because what we're saying is that we know that when people are operating out of a resilient mindset, they have this really kind of pragmatic approach. They know the size of the challenge that is facing them and then no way do they diminish it. You know, just as you have said in, wow, what a terrible time you had when you lost your mum and you had your wee baby. But actually over time, what also happens is they have this optimism and belief that somehow they're going to get through it. And they do what it takes in tiny little moments of the day of getting up. Someone once, one of our clients once said to us, she'd tidy the teaspoon drawer. And that was the thing that got her out of bed. And I like that because it speaks to the, the tininess of, you know, you do one thing, you put one foot in front of the, of the other. And I remember feeling like every day felt like a mountain. And every day we would climb that bloody mountain and the next day you'd be back at the bottom again. But I was absolutely determined to not lose what I have to what I had lost. You know, I had the boys, I had my husband, I had really valuable work that I loved doing. I wanted to make a contribution to this field. And so those things enabled me to claw my way back. But I never wanted to diminish that it was hard. It's really hard grieving and it doesn't go away. Um, You know, you can live and grieve at the same time, but it is blooming hard. It's bloody hard. And (sighs) you're right, it does feel like an absolute mountain that you're constantly Mm. like just sliding back down to the foot. Mm. So it's a very good analogy and I love that you were determined to, to, to climb to the top. So tell us, because this is the title of your brilliant TED talk as well. What are the three things for anyone listening who wants to cultivate more resilience? What are the three things that can really help? Okay. So let's just start by saying these are not the only three things. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not a magic bullet, is it? No. And it's such a TED talk like thing, isn't it? That of course they whittled it down into kind of just 
three secrets of resilient yeah. people. Because <laughs> actually one of the standout findings of resilience research is that you've got to find what works for you. So, And that particularly, of course, is relevant for grief, that everybody is different. We all grieve differently. Every relationship in grief is different. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is you also, you guys know this, that there are universal experiences amongst this difference. Mm-hmm. And so the field of resilience psychology has taught me the importance of these three things. And so, and actually, so I'll go through them and then I want to say a bit more about them. Firstly, that to understand that struggle and suffering happen to us all. They are sadly part of everyone's life. Mm-hmm. Adversity doesn't discriminate. You know, however awful it is, tough times come to us all. And if you know that in your bones, it stops you from feeling discriminated against when something goes wrong. And that is why it's so important. It's also really important in this era that we live in where we have this tendency towards perfectionism and perfectionism is toxic for our psychological health. So I think that's why understanding that setbacks, struggle, suffering is really happens to everyone is really important for us all. The second is that when we look at the all of the literature about resilience psychology, we see that the people who manage to do well, come what may, are people who are able to somehow focus their attention on the stuff that they can change and somehow accept the stuff that they can't. They don't get dragged into that negativity bias whereby they only see what is awful, wrong, lost in their lives. And so this is not, again, about toxic positivity. This is about just redressing the balance and understanding that even when you're navigating your darkest days, there is still good in your world. And training your brain, your heart, your head to notice the good stuff that is still there. Um, So, you know, whether it is that someone's cooked you a meal, someone's mowing the lawn, you've got someone to have a hug, or someone's just remembered their name that day and said it to you, whatever it is, you know, just noticing that there's still good going on in your life so that you don't get completely sucked into that um, fight, flight, freeze, negativity, bias, all of that, because, of course, that happens but positive emotions and positive experiences have been shown by studies to be really important for our grief process. And they're really common in grief. So if you experience mm. a good moment, don't quash it. That is your body. Or feel guilty for it. feel exactly <laughs> that. So much yeah. guilt. Uh, um, and the third helps the first two by teaching you um, to ask yourself, is what I'm doing the way I'm choosing to think, act or be right now helping or harming me in my quest to get through this, survive this loss, relearn to live in the world, maintain that relationship that's so important and is driving me nuts you know whatever it is I think the really powerful thing about this question is its flexibility Mm -hmm. um, and it allows you to personalize and grow your self-awareness about what is working for you Mm -hmm. so I think that's the real beauty of it I get I get um, 
communication from people all over the world all the time, as I'm sure you both do too. But the number one thing that people write to me about is the, is this helping or harming you tactic? And they love it. And, and people use it in such different ways. You know, I always laugh and say, the fifth glass of wine on a Thursday night, is that helping or harming <laughs> you in your quest to get up on Friday? But, you know, in grief, it's a really potent question. You know, trawling through their photos, whatever it is, is it helping or harming you? Such a great question. I remember, oh gosh, in the first year, I had to ask myself things like that all the time. But, you know, it can be really intense thing. Like I remember getting the coroner's report and it's like, is this helping me or harming me going through it? And sometimes I couldn't stop myself, even though I know it was making me more and more upset. But I think in those sorts of moments where you can feel yourself just kind of getting to that point where you're like, it's good to, it's good to cry and it's good to obviously access those emotions but I think when you start to feel quite distressed it's a good time to ask yourself that question is this helping or harming to realize that you have a choice I never looked at the um you know as as an example I never looked at the coroner's report and Trevor did that for me um and there have been things that I didn't open all the letters because I thought I might want to keep them later and you know so it just puts you back in the driver's seat of Mm. your whole journey and I think that is the really why it's so key yeah and on on the point also of finding small things to get you through the day and and feel grateful for something that I've heard you say in an interview before is sometimes grievers feel like they have to ask for permission to seek gratitude and Mm. and that resonated with me because I think often after a loss especially a tragic one or just broadly I think a lot of grievers can feel like expressing that they're looking for joy or they feel joy or they feel grateful for something. It's a little bit taboo and it can feel like we, like you said, like we feel like we have to seek permission to be happy about something. Yeah, it's um, so... I'm really aware of Judy um, Moscovitz um, and Faulkman's work on positive emotions in the toughest moments of life for coping mm-hmm. and we did an interview with Judy, Judy Moskowitz a couple of years ago and you know it is very obvious firstly that we do get positive emotions while we are dealing in our darkest days so throughout bereavement um, it is they're common so it doesn't mean that you have to be experiencing them I'm not saying that but I am saying that if you do know that actually that just makes you typical um, and then the same thing is that further research has demonstrated that we experience those, we have those good moments for a reason, and that is because they give you a rest. You know, they're a circuit breaker from the heavy lifting that is all of those negative emotions that you're going to be experiencing, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're always saying that to people, don't feel guilty, don't quash them. And the bottom line is that negative emotions are like Velcro. They stick to us and positive emotions bounce off us like Teflon. Mm. You know, they, we don't experience them for very long. So actually it makes sense that in your general life, we do need to go hunting the good stuff. We need to actually locate those positive emotions. And we run a course called A Better Way to Grieve and we get people to look at 10 different positive emotions that were identified by Barb Fredrickson and think, you know, where might this show up in my life? Does it already show up in my life? Could I get a bit more of 
inspiration, pride, hope, curiosity, or A-W-E, or, which lots of bereaved people go walk in the hills or go to the beach or... Have you ever had that experience where you've gone to a gallery or a cathedral after when you're grieving and sobbed? Mm. And that's that awe, that feeling of suddenly experiencing the fact that you're just a little tiny cog in this blooming massive universe. Mm. And and you can see that that's actually that's quite a good thing because it gives you a moment of feeling l- small. And not mm. so vast. And it, so you get that feeling of being out of yourself. Um, so these yes. positive emotions are important. Um, so, yeah, I like what you said about, you know, you do need to locate them and and try and bump into them mm. when you can. Some cracking analogies there, Lucy. Circuit breakers. <laughs> um hunting the good stuff love it thank you yeah very important message there because um it would just be absolutely unbearable wouldn't it what is already unbearable would be just impossible if you didn't have a few of those good emotions that you were hunting out yeah and you guys will be really familiar with oscillation theory yeah yeah i was gonna say it reminds me of the dual process model of bereavement like getting out of your grief i know for me i was like watching schitt's creek in the early months of my mom's death and I was laughing hysterically. It was like my break from the intense pain and sadness. It's a perfect example. And that is exactly what um, the dual process model, otherwise known as oscillation theory, tells us that it's an observational model where those researchers have noticed that that is what people typically do in grief, is Mm. that you have those moments where you're absolutely overwhelmed by the stress of the loss and you can't stop crying and you you know you all you can think about is your loved one and how much you miss them and that keening pining longing yearning all that awful stuff and yet you also you ebb and flow between that and what they call restoration where you just have to get on with life and you find yourself laughing you're out with friends you have to talk to the TV man or someone, you know, and the whoever, someone because something's gone wrong and you're suddenly in normal life and you don't really want to be dragged back into normal life, but actually it gives you a rest. And so we ebb and flow between attending to our grief and attending to the new life that we are forced to live in. Mm. And actually that's pretty healthy to have a moment to laugh at Shit's Creek and, yeah, it's a good thing. It is. It is a good thing. And and I'm curious to know how years in um, to your loss and the work that you do, when you do feel the grief ambush, what what do you how do you cope? What things in that moment really help you? And how does it look now versus Mm. the early days for you? It's really rare for me to get a grief ambush now. Um, I mean, I, I would say that I don't experience I can't remember the last time I experienced a grief ambush. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling of um, yearning recently. I was with some girls of Abby's age, a little bit older, some really great friends, and I was with them for a couple of days, and I it really made me miss her. And mm. and I and so I felt instead of being ambushed by it, I felt a kind of bleak sadness. Mm. Um, and I I went to the ballet yesterday afternoon, which I haven't done for 30 years. 
um, sounds lovely. And I used to go with my mum, and so my mum's not here. And and I did think of Abby, and I went with girlfriends, so that was fine. But I I put on a I'm not allowed to wear jeans to the ballet. Who knew? But my mum wouldn't have wanted me to. So I so I took off my jeans before I went to the matinee and put something <laughs> on that mum would have approved of. I'm sure you can both relate to that. And isn't that, it's kind of a lovely thing, isn't it? Because you're keeping them alive by doing yes. those things. I, yes. I, I wanted to say that to both of you, that my mum's been dead. Um, she died in the year 2000, so a long time. And I still think of her. I'm still, you know, she's still with mm. me. I still wear her ring and um, I love all the colours that she loves. And, and I feel so lucky to have had her mm. for the years that I did have her. It's not enough. That's we we feel the same. We feel like now we look back on it, we feel grateful that for the time that we did have, and you can keep that connection with them. And it does, you know, death isn't the end of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we're the same. We call um, so the grief ambush. We call them grief bombs. So in yeah. that similar <laughs> sense of they just come out of nowhere. Waves felt too gentle, didn't it? Him, it was like yeah. no, not a wave. Yeah. Unless like, it's a tsunami. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> It's um, so not a wave, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> in the early days, you sit, you know, it's constant, isn't it? It's like every every day, a few yeah. times sometimes. And you think, am I? is it ever, ever going to subside? So I think to hear you say that, it gives hope, doesn't it? It, it is hopeful mm. because in the early days, some people listening might think, wow, I can't yeah. imagine that. But it does, it mm. does get easier. And it reminds me... Um, of you, Sal, and your relationship with your mum, just going back to how, you know, we, we keep them alive. And, and Sal's talked before on the podcast about how she was just getting to a place with her mum and their relationship had evolved and they'd felt like friends, you know, and had taken a while to get there. And as soon as she got there, her mum was taken away. But that relationship is continuing to evolve, isn't it? Like you, mm. you, you are still working that out and still learning about your mom in ways that you didn't understand her before. And I think it's, it's really important to highlight that, that the relationship can still change as well. Yes. As you, as you age into your mother's years, you learn and empathize more with them over time. Absolutely. Yes. And and the older I'm getting, I'm in my late 30s now, I'm like, oh, I, I am my mum. <laughs> you know, like when I was younger, I rebelled against it so much. Oh, no. I thought we were so different and like, oh, I didn't understand her. And she's wind me up. And now I'm getting older. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am actually her. So, yeah. 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 And we get to the point of actually thinking, oh, yeah, I want to be like my mum. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and and just talking about family, um, your two sons, how did how did you teach them resilience? Did you use the same tools that you had? <laughs> <laughs> what did that look like? Because a lot of our listeners have kids and yeah, curious to know kind of how how that played out and how they coped. So I'm going to say up front, I I like to not talk too much about them because they're 25 and 23 and who wants their mother going on (laughs) on podcasts about them, which is kind of why I laugh. How embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're they're pretty tolerant, but, you know, let's have some respect for the fact that they're whole people of their own. We appreciate Um, that. They would, I know what they would say. One of them said to me years ago, I'm not being funny, mum, but I actually don't use any of your tools. (laughs) 
I love it. So, so I think I'm um, actually, I'm just going to respect them and say, let's keep them out of it because, um, but they have found their way. And um, we talk lots about Abby now and they didn't grieve massively. You know, they did it immediately. And then they went back to school and got on with their lives. And then they mm-hmm. went to university and had a wild time. And now they have jobs and things. And, um, and we, I will say, I think we are um, closer as a family than I ever thought we would be. And we, have survived um mm. yeah I've not everyone has surviving children and I'm very conscious of that that I'm really lucky that I've got the boys so mm-hmm. and to those people who may be listening who have lost their only child I just want to say you will always be a mum mm. it's just so important even when they're not here you're still a mother such an important message. We had a, a comment on our Instagram this morning, actually, from a mum, a grieving mum, and she said, I'm still mothering my son who's no longer here. And, you know, it's just it's important for people to hear that. And, Lucy, we've just absolutely loved this conversation. We knew it would be great, but you've exceeded all expectations. And can you just tell us where can listeners find you and your incredible work? So we run a program called Coping With Loss and the website is copingwithloss.co. So that is the the kind of catch-all place. Um, you can follow me on all media, social media channels at Dr. Lucy Hone, H-O-N-E. And like you guys, you know, I, I tend to try and give away a lot of free grief advice on those channels nowadays. Um because there's so much demand for it. And my, our mission is to really change the way people approach grief and to enable people to find out what works for them so that they can grieve at their own pace, you know, in their own way, in their own time, Mm -hmm. and to discover that it is possible to live and grieve at the same time. It's it's not what you wanted. It's not fun. It's not pretty, but it is possible. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I know a lot of our listeners are going to find this conversation extremely valuable and beneficial. It's been beyond a treat to talk to you. So thank you, Lucy. Oh, thank you both. Honestly, Salonim, it's just a great fun to talk to you both about death. How ridiculous. (laughs) But, you know, I love the work you do. Um, Keep it up and um, let's stay in touch. And I want to do some more research. I should say this, quick plug for my research. I want to do more research on um, what death has taught you. So maybe we could talk about that and we could get some of your tribe involved in that. So that's my big question to people is, you know, what did all of this teach you? How has it changed you? And I want to do some really good research into that next, because I think while it's important to have lots of emphasis on prolonged grief disorder, I also want us, um, I want science to investigate what happens at the other end what you know what what do people learn how does it change them um and around post-traumatic growth as well oh our community would be all over that speak to us anytime i'm sure everyone would love to help out and such a great topic to explore yay thank you (laughs) take care everyone as always a huge thanks for tuning in guys we really hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode And before we go, we have a little favor to ask. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast as it really helps other grievers find us too. Until next time. 